You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So the average wedding in the United States costs $33,000. There's a couple little gasps there. That might be a shock to you. Um, I know that many of us have recently planned weddings of our own. Some are about to have some weddings um, in the next few months. And many of us regularly attending uh, this morning go to weddings all the time, it feels like. Uh, And typically, a wedding in America is a one-night event. It's about four to five hours, any longer than that, and I'm kind of like ready to go. But it's about four to five hours of celebration, and sometimes that weekend includes a rehearsal dinner and maybe like a brunch with the bride and groom, um, things of that nature. And... At first, when I kind of researched that number, I was like, man, that is so much money. And then as I started writing my sermon, I think I, my mind started to change, not necessarily on the money. Like, I'm not saying that we should spend necessarily $33,000 on a wedding, but I am saying um, I think I'm more convinced that we should have really big weddings as people of Jesus. That doesn't mean big as in budget, right? It means big in celebra- as in celebration. We should celebrate really big when we get married. You can have a big wedding that's packed with meaning and celebration and joy and it not really break, ba- break the bank. Um, you can do that on any size budget, I would argue, but that's for another time or a budgeting class in March. Um, <laughs> so I think... In America, in the West, really, we've lost something when it comes to wedding celebrations. And most of us know, too, that there are plenty of cultures around the world that celebrate weddings for days or even weeks. And so this wedding in Cana is like one of those weddings. This is a wedding that has gone on for about a week. So contextually, we should know that this is a long celebration for the people in Cana. And unlike in America, the groom is actually the responsible party for providing the money to fund this endeavor. And as you might guess, because this isn't a cultural thing, it would be hugely embarrassing to run out of wine at a wedding. Right? In America, if you choose to serve wine, if you run out an hour into the ceremony, then, or into the reception, rather, that would be a little embarrassing. And so this is the scene that we find Jesus and his mother Mary in. And it's safe to assume this is a relative because not only are Mary and Jesus both attending, but Mary is helping serve. She's in the back kind of telling the servants to go this way with wine and do this with food. That's kind of the scene that plays out in my head. And before we read, I think um, it's helpful, it was helpful for me to kind of break this narrative into three movements. So these are the three movements. First... The exchange between Mary and Jesus. And I think that needs some unpacking because at first read, we're kind of like, what is going on there? And then two, there's this response that Jesus has, verbally, a spoken response. And then third, there's an action response. There's what Jesus actually does. I think all three are worth looking at. And since this is such a famous miracle, I think also that a lot of people in our culture, Christian or not, like know the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. Um, I want us to see and believe that this isn't just a neat party trick. 
This is the first miracle in his public ministry. And it's called a sign, not a miracle, because it shows us something. It foreshadows something. It points us to something. And so let's remember that. And with that in mind, let's um, look at this narrative exchange between Mary and Jesus. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So, right, like, I think the elephant in the room when you hear this passage for the first time is this doesn't sound like Jesus is being very kind to his mom. It reads like he's being rude, right? But we have to work to separate our cultural understanding of how language is used from that culture's understanding of how language is used. And so we can't picture Jesus and Mary as American mother and son at an American wedding. We have to remember that they're in a different place at a different time. And so the use of woman here, when he responds to a woman, isn't meant to be demeaning or derogatory or sexist or anything like that. It's probably more similar to, and it's not exactly similar to this, but probably more similar to calling her ma'am in the South or dear woman. But while Jesus isn't using the word woman here to be demeaning, he's also not using an endearing term like mother to Mary. He's not using the intimate word to address the woman who gave him birth. So even beyond addressing her with the noun that he uses, his response is not sinfully rude, but it's distancing. What does this have to do with me? Let's think about this. Jesus hasn't performed any miracles at this point. says this is his first sign. So Mary is likely coming to her son here not as a, a mother who's looking for a miraculous event to occur, but rather looking to her son to be resourceful and help solve this embarrassing issue. Right? And Jesus has been a carpenter, we know, from another gospel. And so it's likely that Jesus was supporting the family financially, but also really handy and resourceful while growing up. So Mary comes to her son in what, a way that I think she's just asking, what are we going to do? And can you help? But Jesus doesn't offer help, right? Instead, his response, again, not sinful, is distancing. He doesn't call her mom, and he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, and we'll get to that last part in a minute. But I think this raises the question, why would Jesus want to distance himself from Mary in this moment in front of his disciples? And what John, the author, wants to do here is convince us that there's a posture change between mother and son in this moment. So Jesus is beginning to fully live into his identity as God on earth. His full mission is beginning. Things are going into motion. Signs are starting. And for Mary, this means that no longer is Jesus really identified as her son. And I think for Mary, it means that there's no longer special treatment for her. Right? Jesus is communicating in this moment that Mary like everyone else, has to believe in who he is in a way that saves. Mary has to be born again. 
She must believe in Jesus for salvation. She, too, will be saved by believing in Jesus as the Son of God, right? So we don't have, this is Jesus, Son of Mary. The shift is Mary, Mother of Jesus. Her defin- the way she defines herself, the way her name is named is in relation to Jesus, not the opposite. And all throughout history, we have person, son of person, person, son of person, and now it's Mary, Mother of Jesus, So there's a shift that she's experiencing in this exchange. And I think we should admit, too, that there's a lot of bad theology out there surrounding Mary. She's not a god. She's not part of the Trinity. And we shouldn't diminish her role, nor should we diminish her faith, right? We should absolutely point to her as a faithful and important pillar of the story of God's incarnation. But Jesus is distancing himself from her for a reason. And it's because he knows and he wants her to know Everyone has to believe in him to be saved. There's no exception, not even for his own mother. And so I think the the other temptation is to kind of read this as ungracious. But what puts that temptation to bed is that Mary's response tells us that she gets this and understands it. She says, do whatever he tells you. And again, Don't read the cultural tone into that statement. This isn't an exacerbated, just do whatever you want. It's an authority-shifting statement. Do whatever he tells you. Mary knows that Jesus has authority. The angels told her before he was born, and now she sees it. So in addition to that, let's examine this this answer together. Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? And then he says this, my hour has not yet come, which is an odd response to a request for wine help. But all throughout John and the other gospels, we're going to see that Jesus is talking about this hour that is coming, an hour approaching, an hour that has not come. And then we know when that hour comes, what it's referring to, it refers to the time of Jesus' death. It's the time where his mission, um, his mission kind of reaches its climax, if you will. Jesus is going to spend a long time in the Gospel of John teaching and showing us who he is and what believing in him and being born again means. But he knows ultimately that there is an hour coming where he will be tried and found guilty, even though he was innocent. He knows that he will wear a crown of thorns as the people shout for his death. And he knows he will hang on a Roman cross and he will die. He knows the hour is coming, but it doesn't make it less dreadful when it comes. But he knows, Jesus knows that the hour of his death is necessary. It's necessary because at the moment Jesus dies for the sins of the world, at that moment... He dies in my place and in your place for our sins, for those bad works that we could never pay for, right? Everything we've ever done or everything we've ever thought that is not in step with who God is. We can't even pay for one bad thing we've done, right? Because to truly believe in justice means that karma can't exist. There isn't a cosmic scale where good could possibly outweigh bad. No, justice demands that if there's one bad thing, it must be punished. 
And so on the cross, at the hour of Jesus' coming, he takes upon our sins, takes the punishment for them in order that we might have a clean slate. So that is the hour that is coming. But why is that the answer to, Je- or to Mary's question about wine? He says, will you help me with wine? He says, no, I ha- I'm not supposed to die yet. It doesn't make immediate sense, but this is what he's saying. At the last meal before Jesus' death, he holds up a glass of wine and says, this is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. Drink it. And so at the hour of Jesus' appointed death, wine will flow because his blood will flow. Hebrews 9.22 tells us this, that under the law, everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus answers this question about wine with this answer, the time for my death where wine will flow because my blood will flow is not yet here, so sins are not yet forgiven. He answers a very immediate logistical question with an eternal answer. But that's not all that's going on. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification. And remember what we just read in Hebrews, that blood is necessary for purification. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So I think when I read Jesus' answer, I feel like that implies no. Like, I can't help you. But that's not what he does at all. He says what seems like, no, it's not my hour, this doesn't have anything to do with me, and yet his action addresses the, pro- the immediate problem directly, right? He miraculously saves the wedding and turns all this water into wine. Right? And again, our culture is familiar with this story, but this isn't a mere party trick. It isn't something Jesus does to just keep the party rocking for a couple days. Right? John writes everything in his gospel for a purpose. And Jesus is doing a lot of things with very, very intentional motives. And here Jesus is giving the wedding guests a taste and, and his disciples, really, who witnessed this miracle, a taste of the kind of kingdom he wants to bring to earth. In the Old Testament prophecies, the people of God have rejected God and his holy law, and they were, as a result, experiencing exile and oppression. And as a result of their rejection and failure to treat God as holy, they had lost the blessing that had laid on them as the people of God. And so the prophets were yearning with the people and for the people for a day where God would come and save them and bless them with the abundance of his presence. And one particular prophet, 
uh, named Amos in the ninth chapter, God is speaking to the people of Israel in a section called the destruction of Israel or the destruction of God's people. And it speaks about God judging them for their unfaithfulness. But then the tone changes in verse 13 and it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. The treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of the people, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And here at the wedding of Cana, Jesus has just made the equivalent of 605 to 908 bottles of wine. 605 to 908 bottles of wine. It sounds like the mountains are dripping with sweet wine. It sounds like the hills are starting to flow with wine. And it's not hard to understand the exchange between master of the feast and the bridegroom, right? Good wine is served first, so everyone's really impressed with the hospitality. And then as people get their inhibitions diminished and the wine keeps flowing, it matters a lot less the quality of the wine that's served. But Jesus makes a statement. I am the promised one. The days have come. The lamb has come. God has come. He has come not to perform party tricks, but to restore the fortunes of his people. He will root them in himself and serve them. It's not bad wine. It's not sour wine. It's sweet wine. It's the best wine. The good wine has been kept for now. The hour is close, Jesus is saying, and wine will flow. It's good wine because my death is good. It's good news for a sinful people. So what's, what makes the blood that flows from Jesus and his death good? Well, besides the fact that his death pays for our sin, there's more to the story, right? On the third day after crucifixion, Jesus rises from the dead with a heart pumping new blood and a body of flesh, which means a few things. One, it means the payment for our sin was accepted. And two, it means that Death has been defeated. That the grave can't hold Jesus and therefore it can't hold us who believe in him. So being born again means we will rise again and death won't hold us. And as Cole told us last week, it means we are granted the spirit of power. Which means we'll change into his image even now as we await his return. And after Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended to heaven where he reigns and rules at the right hand of the Father as king. And we are invited into the kingdom by Jesus through his spirit that calls us to himself. And I don't think we would be wrong to consider the invitation to believe in Jesus similar to an invitation to a wedding feast. Revelation 19 says this, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So Jesus here in his action is foreshadowing his mission on earth 
and what the fulfillment of that mission looks like. It looks like a wedding feast. It looks like a place where no longer is good wine served first or good wine served last, but the best wine served all the time. No more embarrassment for our lack of provision. A feast where no one goes hungry and where the light of the sun isn't needed because Jesus himself provides it. At the end of uh, chapter 2, John concludes with this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So this is the invitation to you, whether you believe in Jesus or not this morning. The invitation is to a feast. It's an invitation to believe in him. Believe in his glory that's manifested through these signs. Remember, John is intentionally calling them signs, not miracle, and they not miracles, and they point to something. And there will be more of them. But they all point to this. Jesus is God. They point to this. God has come to earth. They point to him saving people through his horrible death. They point to him raising from the dead. They point to him ruling as ascended king. And the signs point to him returning for his bride, the church. They point to abundant wine and provision. They point to God's glory being manifested among his people by his spirit. They point to God dwelling with his beloved bride, the church. So they point to a wedding feast that you're invited to. If you've yet to consider the invitation of Jesus, you should consider it. Because your RSVP isn't awaiting a response. It's a no until it's a yes. Until you believe that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did, it's a no. But you're invited. And you're welcome to the table. And if you this morning have ticked that yes box, maybe you feel like I've ticked the box when I'm ready for the ceremony to begin. Things are hard. But it's not time yet. God knows the time is coming for the wedding feast, but he wants to get the bride ready. The church has to be ready. So until that day comes, we have a mission to grow by the Spirit into the image of Jesus and to invite people to the wedding. We have to invite people to the wedding. So my hope for you this week is that you meditate on this truth, that we would come to a table in a few moments and experience abundant wine in the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. Well, I hope that we would meditate on the fact that we've been invited to a glorious wedding that's abundant with wine and food by a Savior. And if you've accepted that invitation, meditate on his manifested glory. And if you haven't accepted the invitation, consider it. Consider your response. And so, believers, you are safe and secure at this table. We should believe that together. 
this morning. And if you yet are yet to believe, we invite you to come talk to us. Just start exploring what it looks like to say yes. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the invitation to a glorious banquet where wine flows, wine of purification, that your blood and body were destroyed and poured out so that we could be free, free from sin, and also free to live into our identity, our, our identity as brothers and sisters and daughters and sons of God. Would it not be lost on us the miracle that we were invited? The miracle that we've said yes. And if there are any in the room this morning, Lord, that are sitting thinking, I don't know what my response really is to the invitation to believe in Jesus then I pray that you would tug on their heart to just start the conversation. Start exploring what it means. For those who have said yes, we ask that you would stir their hearts up in love and affection for Jesus. Would you allow us the space this week to be present with you, God? Know that there is no time wasted in the presence of God. There's nothing more important. And so whether at quiet time or parish gatherings or Sunday mornings, would we remember and know and practice that we're in the presence of you, God? Would you remind us that by your grace? Would you comfort us who suffer, who are weak, who mourn? Would you prepare and stir our hearts for joy and abundance and celebration that's coming? in this life or the next. Lord, we trust you to do the work that you've said you will do in us and in those who you are calling to yourself. So I pray that we're faithful. Would you make us fruitful? We pray all of this in the loving, trusting, beautiful, gracious name of Jesus Christ, the King and Savior. Amen.